All right, guys, now grab your Bibles and open them back up to uh, Galatians 5. Um, we're in a section of Paul's letter to Galatians, uh, to the Galatians that is about the, the, the whole subject of sanctification. It's a, it's a section about the Holy Spirit. Um, it's a section about the, the dual nature of the Christian, uh, and because there's this dual nature, there's this battle that's going on. And I, I said to you last week as I started um, uh, that I said something really important uh, two weeks ago, and I repeated it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it again. If you'll notice in verse 16 what it is that is opposed to spirit or to the uh, walking in the spirit, and it is the word flesh. That's in verse 16. Um, that's in opposition to the spirit. Um, now, in verse 18, what is in opposition to the Spirit is law. So what Paul has, has done, essentially, is that he has equated flesh and law. Um, gang, in terms... Maybe you can see why, after last week, why this is, why this is important. Um, because, guys, um, the battle that we're in is a battle um, uh, that has to do with this thing, the flesh, but it's this battle against... Um, it's, it's our tendency to want to resist grace and operate by law or operate according to the flesh or operate in terms of my own performance. Um, guys, this battle that we're in um, is a process of identifying and, and dismantling the things that we trust, the strategies that we trust to meet our own needs. By law, by obedience, by uh, performance. Uh, maybe performance is a better word. Um, folks, there is this attracting power to the idea that we can meet our own needs without any assistance from God. And that is nothing but law. And that's the nature of the battle, guys. Um, <clears throat> pardon me. <clears throat> So what we have to do um, in this battle is, as I said last week, we must not only ask why we're doing or what we're doing that is wrong, but why. Because the why is, or why are we doing this, these things? We sin because we believe that there is this need that God won't meet. And so, I've got an unmet need that God won't meet so that I must, need it my, I must meet it myself. So I develop strategies. I develop methods by which I can fill up this inner vacuum that I sense. And, and I, if I only had that, then I would be happy. It's, it's, um, it's law, guys. Um, I have to have this or I have no value. The battle, guys, the battle that we're in is the battle of our flesh 
against our tendency to want to resist grace and meet our own needs, become our own savior. That's the nature of the battle. So last week, we talked about um, that's, the, that's, the, that's what we're supposed to crucify, uh, verse 24. Um, uh, where is it? And, and those who belong to Christ have crucified. That's the thing that we're supposed to crucify, this tendency that we have to resist grace and become our own pseudo-saviors. Our own, make our own, meet our own needs, because as you know, God is not going to meet our needs. Or the suggestion is that God is not good. Um, now, so that's what we're called to crucify. But how? How does, how does that crucifying process take place? And that's where we're going to start tonight. Um, first of all, make sure that you understand that the battle is not external, it's internal. Um, this is not a battle that can be won on the outside. It starts, I've got to know not only what I do is wrong, but why I do it. And why I do it is that I'm not really convinced that God is willing to meet all my needs. So I got to take this bull by the horns and, and I've got to develop a a strategy by which those needs can be met. So it's an internal battle, it's not an external battle. But the, the, um, the prominent weapon in this whole crucifixion process is, is something that Paul describes as a sword. The sword of the Spirit. Um... You know, guys, John Owen has written, um, oh, he's got like 16 volumes. Uh, and if you really want um, to spend your life uh, in wonder, you ought to read one of uh, his volumes. But in volume six, where he's talking about the mortification of the flesh or the crucifixion of the flesh, he talks about just say No. Uh Uh-oh, I've got this wrong. There's a K and a W. John Owen says, just say no. Not not to these silly things that we're trying to grit our teeth and discipline ourselves. No, The, the, the primary, the most prominent weapon in the crucifixion of the flesh is that. This sword of the Spirit. So when I'm tempted, I turn to what God has said and not some kind of intention and strength of my own will, which is our default mode. Um, I've got a porn problem, and so I am going to... Instead of going to the scriptures, finding out what they say, having the scriptures affect what is called my affections, that's what Jonathan Edwards called them, my affections, the the things that I do love, and the more I change my affections, the more my behavior changes. Not the other way around. So just say no. Just say no, that is, what has God said? That's the primary weapon of this whole crucifixion process. Okay, I want to tell you a story. 
It's a story that's found in your scriptures, in your Bibles, if you want to take a look at it. But um, it's an it's a odd, um, really kind of an unknown story, I think. I don't think you're going to recognize this story. It's in 2 Kings 13. It's the last miraculous act done by Elisha before he dies. Now, you remember, there's all these prophets in, in, uh, in Israel. Um, and the, I guess the most famous of them was Elijah, but he certainly wasn't the only one. There was Nahum and Joel and uh, Hosea. Those guys were prophets too. But, of course, Elijah steps aside and Elisha takes over. So Elisha, in the last miraculous act of his life, now he does one after he's dead, which is also in 2 Kings 13, but um, the king of Israel comes to see him. His name is Joash. The king of Israel comes to see Elisha, and he's just taken over the throne and inherited a very weak army. And the Syrians to the north of him, led by Haziel and then later Ben-Hadad, are just really eating their lunch. And so Joash comes to Elisha and he says, My father, my father, the chariots and the, and the horses. What he's saying is, we got no military. What am I supposed to do about the Syrians when we got no military? Now, do you know this? Does it ring the bell? And so Elisha says, Get your arrows. So he goes and gets a handful of arrows. And he says, um, shoot one out the window. So he shoots one out the window. And he comes back and he says, all right, now take those arrows. Now, let me stop right there. Guys, if you're a prophet, what are you? You're, the, you're supposed to be the vehicle by which the word of God comes to the people of God. When the prophet spoke, what they were in possession of is the word that they got from God. That's what the prophet does. Okay, so Joash comes and says, what, what am I supposed to do with this? I got no army. And he said, get your arrows, and I want, you to, I want you to strike the ground with them. Now, this is not in the text. I made this up. But Joash says, wait a minute. I know what you do with arrows. I got a problem. My problem is Syria. I know what to do about my problem. I take these arrows and I shoot and kill all those people. You see, I've got an unmet need here, Mr. Prophet Man. And my unmet need is the, is the Syrian army keeps, uh, you know, taking our territory. So here's how I'm going to fix it. Because you certainly can't look to God to fix this thing. Because God's not good. And so, um, as the story goes, this is in the text, he says, take the arrows and strike the ground. Do you remember the story now? Strike the ground with the arrows. And that's what's going to be the solution to your military problem. What? Wait a minute. That's not how Hazael's going to be defeated. I know how he's going to be defeated. You know, just look at this. And so he strikes the ground, and he strikes the ground three times. Remember? And do you remember what Elisha did then? Elisha's mad. He's mad. Because our, you struck the ground three times, and you're going to defeat him in battle three times. You should have struck him more. 
And then you could have put an end to Syria. Because you see, here's how I fight my battle. Well, I've got intelligence, I've got resources, I've got arrows, and this is what I resort to time and time. Instead of, what did God say? You mean he's going to deliver me by using these arrows to strike the ground instead of to shoot them at my enemy? Are you asking me, in terms of solving this problem... That I am to trust in the provision that God has just made through the prophet? Is that what you're saying? What's required of you, Joash, Mr. King Boy, is that you're supposed to know what God said and enthusiastically and repeatedly yield to that without resorting to your own devices. You see, in the mind of Joash, the way to defeat the Syrians is by taking these arrows and putting them between their eyes. But God said, through Elisha, God said, here's how you're going to do it. Just take those arrows and strike the ground. Because what I'm looking for is somebody who will trust me and who will enthusiastically and repeatedly obey me. And I'm going to trust in what this says as opposed to the devices that, I, that are my default mode. What's my default mode? War, war, go fight those Syrians and beat them all up. That's what I normally do. But now the word of God to, um, to the king is, I'll deliver you. I'll meet that need. You just take those ears and you strike the ground with them. What? How is that going to defeat Haziel? You just let me take care of that. But see, guys, there's, to me, it's just a grand illustration. I sense that I've got a problem. And my problem, uh, instead of resorting to this, that changes my affections from the inside, I say, okay, well, you watch this. <laughs> I, I can figure this out. It's the, it's the tendency on our part to resist grace. Here's the provision of God. Strike the dead gum ground with the arrows. Why did you only do it three times? If you'd have been more enthusiastic and repeated in your obedience, you'd have been completely delivered. But no. What I would rather trust in is my own device, my own method for, for meeting my own needs. That's the battle, guys. There it is in 2 Kings 13. <clears throat> I got a battle. I got an enemy. Uh, the, the only way I know how to fight him is, um, is to lean and rely on some kind of strategy that I developed instead of using the sword of the Spirit and just say no. I'm going to, in the midst of this battle where the temptations are raging, I am going to go back and I'm going to discover again and again what God, I'm going to keep reading that enthusiastically and repeatedly. I'm going to find out what God has said until it changes my affections, which will ultimately then change my behavior. It's from the inside out, folks. Just say no. 
That's not the only weapon at your disposal, but it's the prominent one, the sword of the Spirit. Now, guys, that's, I, I'm just trying to suggest to you that the, um, uh, th- th- those are some strategies in terms of what it means to crucify the flesh. Because you're trying to, you're trying to replace those, those operations of my own flesh that makes me love law and resist grace. And I'm trying to identify and dismantle those. And so if this is what God has said, I'm going to beat those arrows into the ground until they, I don't have any more arrows. All right. Um, now move with me to verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. We're going to save that second half. We're going to look at that next week. But I want you to notice the first half of verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, what is that? You know, guys, um, I think evangelicals, particularly in the South, are, are somewhat unfamiliar with this language. Um, keep your finger in, in Galatians 6 and see if you can find uh, the book of Titus real fast. The book of Titus. Chapter 3. All right, if you're there, I want to read it to you. Just one verse. Titus 3, 5. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the, the average evangelical in the South would read this like this. He saved us, not because of the works done by our righteousness, but according to by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sin. That part we know. But look at the text, ladies and gentlemen. It doesn't say that. How did God save us? Look at it. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. All right. Now go back to Galatians 5.25. If we live by the Spirit. Gang, this whole idea of living is not like, okay, now I just my everyday life gets unfolded because I'm living. By... No, 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 no. The idea is if you've ever been brought to life, you've been brought to life by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. You know what that's called? That's called regeneration. Before this other part, before you get to that other part, you got to understand these first six words. If we live by the Spirit, if we've been brought to life by the Spirit. Now, gang, we don't think like that. We think of Jesus dying on the cross, and that is a wonderful thing to think. But, do you know that's not enough? Do you know that the death of Jesus Christ is not enough? Do you understand that? Because we are saved by the washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Now, what is that? Well, guys, that is language 
um, that is used all over the New Testament, mostly by John, but it's used by James, it's used by Peter, it's used by uh, uh, Paul. But John, um, I've got um, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. Um, have you ever been, have you ever heard of being born again? Well, that's what this is. Have you ever been, have you ever heard of being born of God? Well, that's what this is. Um, born of the spirit, born again, born, um, uh, God, even when we were dead, made us alive together with Christ. You know what that, well, that's just this. Um, you who were dead, uh, made uh, made alive together with him. Made alive? When did he make me alive? Oh, he did that with this. Um, James, he brought us forth by the word of truth. How did he bring us forth? Well, that's that's this regeneration thing. You see, guys, long before, no, uh, before you embrace the beauty of Christ's finished work, This happened to you. Nobody sees the beauty of that finished work unless this has happened to you. If we live by the Spirit, brought to life by the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit. Gang, um, let me show you this in the Old Testament and then we'll quit. Go to the book of Ezekiel real quick. Go to the book of Ezekiel 36. And I'm going to confuse you, so um, gird up the loins of your mind. Uh, Ezekiel 36, in verse 25. Um, there it is. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. What is that? Oh, that's just this. It's regeneration. Guys, in the theological world, the John chapter 3 of the Old Testament is Ezekiel 36. You want to find John 3 in the Old Testament? There it is right there, Ezekiel 36. Because it's discussing this work of the Spirit by which your dead, stony, rocky, uh, dead heart was removed. And then it was replaced with something that lived. That's called regeneration. He saved us, not on the basis of works that we have done, but by his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. If we live by the Spirit. Now, let me show you something. Um, <laughs> go to Ezekiel 16, because it's there too. Ezekiel 16 is probably the most prominently known chapter in all of Ezekiel. People don't read Ezekiel much, but boy, if you've missed Ezekiel 16, you've missed some good stuff. Ezekiel 16 is worth your time tomorrow morning. But let me read just, just a couple of verses. Um, verse 6, God is speaking, and he says, When I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, 
I said to you, in your blood, live. <laughs> By the way, people resist um, chapter 16 because it's got so much sexual overtone to it. And if you want to read through there and find out, I mean, it's, it's in there in spades. Um, but it all begins when God passed by and saw that which was dead, saying to it, live. Live. Gang, how does God do that? He does it through the work of the Holy Spirit called regeneration. Now, here's the confusing part. Go to chapter 18. Verse 31. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Wait a minute. There I'm being told to get myself a new heart. I just read you from 36 that God gives you that heart. Gang, listen. The reason that I wanted that new heart is because God had already given me one. When he exchanged my dead rocky stony one, and replaced it with the heart of flesh. John says it like this. Unless you were born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Until this happens to you, ladies and gentlemen, you don't even know that you want to have a new heart. But once there is this regenerative work of the Holy Spirit, now I, I, I see I want a new heart, and I want that new heart because God has already given me one. He came by when I was uh, wallowing in my blood. And he said, live. That's called the rebirth, ladies and gentlemen. In the South, they call it being born again, which is a great term. It's just overworked. Born again, the theological title is the word regeneration. That's what Paul is referring to in Titus chapter 3. He saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Then, with that in mind, you go back to Galatians chapter 5 and he says... If we live by the Spirit, <laughs> if you have been brought to life by the work of the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit, then for heaven's sakes, ladies and gentlemen, it is now time to start walking by that same indwelling power. But my friend, unless that is there, you can never heed this imperative of verse 25. If we live, having been brought to life by the Spirit, then the expectation is that we're going we're to begin to walk 
by the power of that spirit. Gang, um, that's why the whole idea of conversion in the South is so minimal because all it states is simply come forward at the end of the service and you're converted. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm sure that that many are. But coming forward at the end of the service does not seal that deal. What seals that deal is the prior work of God's Spirit bringing me to life, opening my eyes such that I might see my sin and my need for a Savior. And all of a sudden I say, oh man, I want a new heart because I've already got one. And those are the people who say, okay, 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 okay. Now I belong to this Savior. How do do I live? How do I reflect him? How do I represent him? Because if you live by the Spirit, then how do you explain not walking by that Spirit? Because that Holy Spirit is now indwelling us and taking up residence within all of us. Any of us who are on our way to heaven, it all began at some point in time when God granted you this. He brought you to life. He walked by you while you were wallowing in your blood. And he looked upon you and said, live. And we did. We'll quit there. Our Father, I pray that you'll make some of this at least clear for your people that this marvelous work that you have wrought by the Holy Spirit to bring us to life, that now the expectation is that we would walk, that we would live a life that is consistent with this Holy Spirit that we say dwells within. We're grateful for having had mercy on the undeserving such as we are. But now, Lord, we want to spend the rest of our life saying thank you by walking according to the power granted by the indwelling Holy Spirit. Might we find more and more victory in this battle as we identify and dismantle our tendency to rely on the arm of the flesh to shoot the arrows instead of to beat them in the ground, would you uh, enable us um, to see those things that are so attractive, so tempting, things that would drive us away from a life of humble dependence upon your grace and mercy. Do that, O God, for all of your people. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.